the role of women in the economy, the role of women as it's starting to transform every aspect of culture. This is showing up in the United States. This is showing up around the world. A figure that I learned yesterday about Pakistan. For the women who are educated there between the ages of 8 and 11, their life expectancy goes up by 20%, and the rate of children that they have drops in half. This is an indicator to me of the substance of what this panel is going to be about. Mr. Risdell, as you all know, is involved in American Public Radio's marketplace. I'm going to allow him to introduce our panelists, but it is a great privilege to have all of you with us. Thank you, and over to you. All right, super, Patrick. Thank you so much. Let me do the admin stuff first. We are recording this session, so if you would just make sure your cell phones are off or on buzz, that would be um, handy. Uh, my name, as Patrick said, is Kai Rizdahl. I am uh, absolutely not what is going on here at the panel. I'm just going to ask these ladies questions, and they are going to make us all very smart about this, this key issue that is happening in the globe uh, uh, and in uh, the, the international economy today. Let me just do some very brief introductions uh, to get us going. To my immediate left is Isabel Coleman. She is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, she runs their Women and Foreign Policy program there. In the middle is Beth Brook. She is the global vice chair of, and I'm going to have to consult my notes because this is a long one, public policy, sustainability, and stakeholder engagement, engagement uh, at Ernst & Young. She is uh, a former Crown Fellow here at the Aspen Institute and also uh, on the Board of Trustees. Am I right? Yes. Uh, and finally, down at the end, fresh off an airplane from Geneva last night, so Lord only knows what time it is for her, uh, Sadia Zahidi from uh, the World Economic Forum uh, in Geneva, uh, where she is the head of constituents, uh, but to our purposes, uh, runs their gender issues programs, she uh, co-authors their uh, global gender gap reports, and she runs their women leaders forums uh, and programs as well. Uh, we were talking uh, before just to do a little uh, introduction of ourselves and to familiarize ourselves with um, what we were going to be talking about today. And, and I, I said that I was going to start with a question about, you know, we know that empowering women economically and uh, socially and, and all the other ways that uh, women can be empowered in this society, we know that's a good thing. Uh, so tell us why it's such a hard problem to solve. And they all three of them said, you know what, I'm not sure everybody knows why that is such a good thing. They don't understand the data behind it. They don't understand why that works. So the first question, and I, I think we'll just go down the row, is get your sense of and your explanations of how we know. What happens when women are empowered economically and socially and in all those other ways? Isabel? Well, I wish, um, I wish there were more men in the room, frankly. Yeah. Because yeah. I, thank I think, you, well, we, thank you. We have you. like three, right? We have three or four. Be proud. I think that uh, looking at this uh, gender ratio here, that the audience probably does know uh, a lot more than, than we would think. But because uh, women read more about women's issues than men do. Uh, but one of the reasons it's so important to understand the economics behind it is because then you understand it's not a women's issue. It's a global issue, and it's a global human rights issue, without a doubt, but it's also a very, very important global economic issue. And so much of the work that I've done at the Council on Foreign Relations has really addressed it from an economic perspective. Um, we heard the, the fact reiterated right in the beginning that uh, in Pakistan, life expectancy goes up, fertility rates go down when women are educated. I mean, that's true around the world. And for every year of additional education, women uh, tend to delay the age of marriage and have their first baby at a later age and have fewer children overall. I mean, there is a straight line correlation between girls' education and fertility. 
And why does that matter? Well, in a country like Pakistan, which is 180 million people today, on its way in the next 15 years to 300 million people, that's a really important pressing issue. This is a country that you know, barely can uh, support the vast majority of its people. 80% live on two, less than $2 a day uh, of Pakistanis. And um, you, know, you have uh, tremendous uh, investments that are needed in infrastructure and human capital in that country. And it's not just Pakistan. Every fast-growing country in the world today, in a population sense, has a low status of women. It's just a straight line correlation. So there's certainly uh, a, a fertility argument. There's a per capita income argument. Countries that invest in women have stronger economic growth, more stable societies, uh, greater per capita income growth, and the benefits we know from enormous amounts of data are translated more readily to the next generation through that female vector than they are through the man. So a woman who is educated is more likely to educate her daughters and her sons than an educated father. And we have a lot of facts to show, and I, you know, I could go on for a long time, but... We only have an hour on the panel, so... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Beth, your thoughts? Well, here's why it's important right now, in my mind, and that is the state we are in our global economy, with a very fragile economic situation. Uh, we, you know, you, we all know about China, the emerging market and the consumer potential of China. We all know about India. What's, what I see as women are women are the next emerging market. And I think we need to think about women as an emerging market, just like we think about China, just like we think about India. And you know how we invest when we see those emerging markets. And when I say women as an emerging market, um, I think Booz and Company just came out with a study that suggests that in the next 10 years, 870 million women are going to come into being economically enabled and economically empowered. And that's as consumers, it's as employees, it's as entrepreneurs, it's as leaders. 870 million women in the next 10 years. To the extent we can accelerate, because Isabel so well described the effect when they are economically empowered, at how they, there's a multiplier effect on our communities and the economic benefits to entire societies, both men and women, of having those women empowered. If we can accelerate the pace of that 870 million women coming into economic empowerment, that's the, that's the economic potential. And the, the Boo study also suggests that those 870 million women are not prepared and they're not enabled. And what they mean by that is not prepared, they're not educated, as Isabel said, and they're not enabled and they're not enabled as political leaders, they're not enabled as corporate leaders, they're not enabled in, in their social status in their countries and in their communities to be employees or consumers. In their families. In mm -hmm. their families, exactly. So when we think about country by country, society by society around the world, I tend to think about it from how do we prepare them and how do we enable them? And that those answers look different country by country, but. That, to me, is the way to, to go about We'll power. get to the how-tos in a second, but Sadia, your thoughts uh, on this question, and then I want to turn what, a little what sideways. What we've been working on is trying to resolve some of that confusion around where we stand, the, what is the state of the world on gender gaps, what is the magnitude of gender gaps, and try to provide that country-by-country -country picture so that we fully understand what is going on in, in this area. So what we did is create a global gender gap index and rank countries according to how well they're doing on closing these gaps. So looking at health, education, 
economic participation, and political empowerment. Bring those cold, hard facts to what has previously been a, perhaps an emotional issue, uh, perhaps an, a human rights issue. And so we're saying, yes, of course, there's an equity argument to be made, but there's also an efficiency argument. And to make that clear, let's bring data to that. And when we uh, produce this ranking, we see the highest ranking country in the world, uh, in Iceland, switches around between Iceland, Sweden, and Denmark, um, the Nordic countries primarily over the last four years that we've been producing this report. They've only closed about 80% of the gender gap. So even the highest ranking countries in the world have a long way to go. When you look at the bottom end of the rankings, you've got Pakistan, Chad, and Yemen. They've closed between 46 and 50% of the gender gap. And we're looking at, regardless of how rich a country is, so regardless of your income level, how equitably are you distributing that income between women and men, or those opportunities or resources between women and men? When you look at it that way, the picture is quite startling. There's a long way to, be, to, to go in all of these different countries, but obviously there are success stories at the top and experiences that countries at the bottom could be learning from. Well, let's explore that a little bit, and I'll go back now to what was going to be my original question, which is if we know all this, if we have the data that, that you have pointed out, and if we have the numbers, and if we have the social factors that you have pointed out, Isabel, why are we stuck? Why is this so hard, Isabel? Well, I think we, um, we only recently have the data. Hmm. I think it's been in the last uh, 20 years that we've had the data, and uh, the data really came out of uh, places like the World Bank that began looking at it. Now, you know, 30, 30, 40 years ago, the World Bank would um, say in a country, well, we understand that there are gender differences, but that's culture, and that's what we don't do that. We don't do culture. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not here to change culture. We're here to uh, do poverty alleviation. And it was only after banging their head against the wall through a lot of programs that went nowhere because it didn't address women and didn't address the cultural barriers that they began to say, oh, we actually have to engage with culture and we have to engage on this women's issue because there's no greater lever for poverty reduction than this. And they began assembling the data. And that really, if you look back, you know, early 1990s, um, that data started coming out of the World Bank, but it was done by economists. It didn't start to get into the mainstream until the last decade, I'd say. And even still, you know, I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs six years ago called The Payoff from Women's Rights, looking at mm -hmm. co co coalescing a lot of this data. People's, you know, there was nothing particularly new in that that hadn't been done in the 1990s, but from a policy perspective, people found it groundbreaking. Oh, I didn't know the economic arguments. And so I think that today, um, the work that, you know, the World Economic Forum is doing and, and consultants are doing and um, policymakers are doing are beginning to get that data into the hands of people who are now understanding it. Um, just very quickly, you know, the, um, the I, I focus mostly on the Middle East in my work, and the Arab Human Development Reports have pointed out to Arab leaders that these gaps are causing, you know, economic drag in their own economies. And they, you know, they come back and say, oh, that's interesting. You know, they don't want to look at it from a rights issue. Mm. They don't care, I think, so much about the, the cultural factor. But now that we're beginning to put it in economic terms, okay, I'm beginning to get that. And there is some movement and engagement but it's pretty recent, to be honest, and I think Beth is making a great point that if we can speed up that process, it's good for all of us. If we, though, Beth Brooke, go to these corporations and say, you can make a bazillion dollars if you target the women in the world, 
Isn't that just really cynical? Is that, is that a sideways way to get to an admirable goal? Get there any way you can. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. I mean, seriously, I, it, people will act in their own self-interest. I mean, that's human nature. So having to get the private sector, under, to, private sector to understand that it is in their self-interest mm -hmm. to economically empower women or to have more women in their leadership or have more women in their supply chain, to, to, to convince them of that argument and why it is in their self-interest, they will act. We've seen, we see evidence of that. Companies doing some very good things around the economic empowerment of women. But it is in their self-interest, make no mistake about it. And, and in fact, I mean, I, you know, people who've heard me speak know, I hate the words corporate social responsibility. Hate those words because it takes the whole issue and, and puts it over here as a sideshow rather than at the core of the business. We work, we at Ernst & Young, we support women entrepreneurs around the world and we're, we're doing a lot more around that. Why? Because we have a long-standing commitment, commitment to entrepreneurs. We have realized the economic opportunity in supporting women specifically as entrepreneurs and we know someday they will be some of the best clients in the world. Um, and, and so it's, it's absolutely in our enlightened self-interest to be in that space, as is GE, as is Walmart, as are others. So, yeah, I'll get there in a second. Let's, let's explore that economic theme for a minute. I want to get to you and NGOs and, and the role that NGOs play, but I want to stay with, with good old-fashioned capitalism for a second and, and ask you to tell us about the other article you've written for Foreign Affairs recently, where companies actually spend this money in developing countries. What happens? Well, I was going to say that the... the um, I think where we are on women today is where we were with the green movement and sustainability 10 or 15 years ago, which is companies began to do it because people were clamoring for it and it's good for the brand, but they began to realize that if they redesign their packaging, they saved a whole lot of money. It's good for the bottom line. If they put um, uh, redesign their trucking routes, they saved on gas. So today, uh, you know, the article you're referring to in, um, that I wrote in the May-June issue of Foreign Affairs looks at how companies today are beginning to understand that it's not simply a corporate social responsibility. They may have come to it initially from that perspective, but actually um, women are very important in terms of uh, as customers, mm -hmm. as, um, as suppliers in their supply chain, um, as employees, and you know, there's an example I give in the article about Nike. Nike in the 1990s was hit with some pretty bad press about sweatshops. So Nike, to its credit, went to clean up sweatshops. And as it began to do that in its supply chain, it realized that 90% of the people in those sweatshops were women. And that really, a lot of what was going on was um, a women's issue that is a Nike issue in these countries. And it began to, to understand that the low status of women in these countries uh, is something that really affects Nike's whole um, supply chain and brand and image and everything else. And so, as many of you no doubt know, Nike has made um, the has embraced the idea of empowering adolescent girls its thing, and is really using its brand to change how people in developing countries view girls and and revaluing girls. In effect, uh, one of the other examples I give in the article is GE which was accused of gendercide in India. GE makes sonogram technology, and it's the number one sonogram supplier in India, which was being used, its product being used for sex-selective abortions. And uh, the government in India has tried to stop this practice. It can't, it keeps getting worse. It passed a law holding the makers liable, 
And GE suddenly woke up to a brand disaster, which it was being accused of female feticide. And it realized that it's not just about sticking labels on its machines to say, well, you can't use it this way. Its core problem is the low status of girls in society. And now it's using its own brand and its corporate leverage to try to begin to change attitudes in that respect. So let's go now from, from as we think about actors in, in the theater of how we empower women now, let's go from corporations to, to NGOs, where you work for a large one, an influential one. How do you do it? Is it just public policy programs and awareness and enlightenment? What do you do? I'm actually going to answer that question a little bit differently, nope, because so. while the forum is a, a global international NGO, uh, our core constituent, our biggest constituent is business. And so that's really the group mm -hmm. that we're focusing towards. And we're doing that not just because that's our core constituent, because that's where the next wave on this issue will come from. Because if you look at the global data, I don't have global global data, but 134 countries in the world, that covers 93% of the world's population. In these countries, if you weight it by population, They've closed 96% of the gap on health. They've closed 93% of the gap on education. So we've made huge progress, and that's where NGOs have played a huge part. Mm -hmm. NGOs and grassroots movement have helped make a lot of that happen. But if you look at the data on economic participation, women have only 60% of the economic participation that men have, and only 16% of the political empowerment. Now, those are the next big, two big things. So the next two big actors are either governments or business. And business needs to recognize that this is actually a huge opportunity. If you have got that many healthy and educated women out and, and they form 50% of the overall talent pool available, then it's got to be business that's, that's ensuring that women are then integrated into the economy. But Picking see, this, up, go ahead. This is, it's complex. And get, I get out. Well, <laughs> no. well, I mean, I think you've, you've heard us all talk about that there's layers. There's women yeah. as consumers. There's women as employees. There's women as entrepreneurs. There's women as political leaders. There's women as corporate leaders. The, the interaction among all of those things to try to accelerate the movement of this 870 million emerging market, if, you, if we can move on women in leadership, political leadership, women in corporate leadership, some of the opportunities that exist, that like that Isabel described at GE or at Walmart, with women equally distributed in leadership, some of those issues will be seen faster, will be acted upon faster. The data has been around for a long, long time and, and it hasn't been acted on at all. Right. Uh, but it is starting to accelerate. But women in, at, in, in, women in leadership will move the ball quicker which will have an effect on women as consumers and women as employees. We've got to think about it on all levels. Right. So, so we'll get to women in leadership in a second because I know that's an issue of yours. But I also want to touch on something else you have done in your life. You have been in politics and in government, right? You've worked in the Clinton White House. You are connected here through the Aspen Institute to some very influential people, uh, both in government and in the private sector. What is the role, as we have said now, of corporations and NGOs? What's the role of government in, in this very complex issue? Oh, I, I think government has an enormous role to play from a policy perspective, from a bully pulpit perspective, from a, um, you know, but, but especially, like, you take the U.S. just as an example. The, the U.S. from a public policy perspective on the enablement of women, in my mind, is behind. Everybody, anybody else's mind? I mean, how's, how's the U.S. doing? Just to get a show of hands, right? Are we behind, ahead, doing all right? 
All right, so a whole bunch of ands. Okay. Go ahead. I, I would I would say if this is a this is an enlightened group, I would say if we talk to most of the society in America, they would probably think the U.S. is pretty far ahead mm. Mm. on public policy issues right. in the U.S. And, and frankly, I only had my eyes open. I, I got the benefit to be on a UN commission on the status of women, where I got to, to work with other countries around the world to just see how far behind the U.S. was on many of these policy issues. But why is that? Part of the reason for that is the, the U.S. private sector has been pretty far ahead. They, they've led without having to be prodded to lead. So the private sector's moved on issues of flexibility and things. But the, the Securities and Exchange Commission has just come out with new rules in the last few months that require management and boards to disclose the diversity on their boards and their philosophy around how they select people to be on their corporate boards. So at least investors now have a window into how management and corporate boards are making decisions about the leadership on their boards. The Scandinavian countries, Norway in particular, on the other hand, from a policy mm -hmm. perspective, you asked about government, yeah. used a sledgehammer and said, you know what, our private sector's never going to get there if we don't do something aggressive. And so they passed a, a, a law a few years ago that requires 40% women on corporate boards. It was interesting in this UN commission to sit down with the leadership of Norway and walk back in time, and, and I just say, walk me through. Yeah, what was that scramble like? Right? What oh was my that God, we got to find women, right? Why did you yeah. do it? What was it like? Yeah. You know, and it was a fascinating conversation around, you know, recognition the culture was not going to move without doing that, but also that moment in time where they said, when we did it, there was this public outcry saying, oh my gosh, we don't have enough qualified women to fill this mandate of 40% women on corporate boards. We'll have five women in Norway on every corporate board in the country. I mean, that was sort of the thought. And then they said, and I said, well, okay, so how did it play out? Yeah. And they said, you know, the data is still out. They're still, they're about a year away from really having good data to, to say what the impacts have been. But they said within a year, 40% women on corporate boards. It's not just five women. There were plenty of well-qualified women. And they've said, they're, they're, we'll never go back. We don't need a law now. It, it's accepted. And other countries are following suit to change their culture, government, yeah. their change culture. Isabel, you wanted to say? Yeah, you know, I, I think one area, um, you look at the role of the military. And the military played a very forward-looking role on race in the United yes. States. Yes. Um, and, you know, really desegregated the armed forces at a time when America wasn't really behind no. that. Um, and it became a, um, a cultural transformative force in the larger society. And I think um, in the military, you've seen them push women. It's not been without its challenges. And now overseas, um, in Afghanistan, for example, uh, the military understands that the role of women in society in a country like Afghanistan is so critical from an economic perspective, from a stabilizing society perspective, and one of the things they're doing is they're looking at this whole supply chain issue. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, well, what can we do as the military? One of the things we can do is we can train women in the police forces. We can train women in the Afghan you know, security forces. We can have female uh, military personnel you know, trying to be interlocutors with Afghans. I think that's all on the female military personnel is pretty limited. But one of the things they can do is they do enormous requisition in the country. And they're trying to get female-led um, businesses in mm -hmm. Afghanistan as part of that supply chain. Mm -hmm. So they did a set-aside program in the fall um, to encourage female-owned businesses in Afghanistan. It was a little bit of a disaster. 
The women um, didn't know how to sew the uniforms. They didn't know what the how to meet the quality standards. Yeah. So the military said, okay, we gotta go a couple steps backwards. Let's do training programs for women to help them understand the whole request for proposal process and get them into the requisition um, stream. And as a way of uh, building up women in the economy. Mm -hmm. And so th that's a long way of saying I think that from a policy perspective, you know, there are institutions in the US that can, that are very influential and very powerful and can use its leverage in positive ways. Absolutely. Sorry, your thoughts or no? Yeah, going back to the Nordic model, yeah. I, I mean, these countries made social equity goals a part of their development a very long time ago, 100 years ago, if not more. And one of the, you know, we're talking about the quotas that have been put in place in, Den in Norway now, but Denmark, for example, their political parties, uh, as of 1969, I believe, if, if not a little bit earlier, have been required to present 40% uh, of the candidates have to be women. Now that was something that was put in place at that time and in 1990s they actually abolished that law because it wasn't needed anymore. I mean once you've made that push, so there is something to be said for targets whether it's in the political world and increasingly in the business world as well. Mm -hmm. The point is it yeah. the policy issues differ by country, the mm -hmm. needs of the country right. and very different mechanisms. Let me, let me just comment on, you know, is it cynical? Like yeah. to, Go ahead. You know, I was in uh, Rwanda in April and actually I'm not in the um, I love Paul Kagame camp. He's the greatest thing that's ever hit Africa. I think he has some very significant authoritarian tendencies that are of tremendous concern. He, though, uh, decided that he was going to do this whole women's empowerment thing. And, uh, and he was, you know, there were a lot of women who were clamoring for it, too. And the fact is, I was there doing interviews with women. It doesn't really matter what the region, reason or rationale was for doing it. The Rwandan parliament is now 51% women. And not only that, you know, governors, mayors, um, heads of all sorts of different judges, all different institutions are women. And when you talk to, I was there interviewing business women in, uh, in Rwanda, there is a complete mentality shift among women and increasingly among men that I don't think is ever going backwards. Right. So it doesn't, hmm. in my mind, it doesn't matter what Kagame's rationale or motives were for, for doing this. It has in, um, in 10 years created a sea shift that is sinking in to the next generation that will be um, hard to undo. So see, Kai, I mean, yeah. what's, what's really fascinating to me is that, that Rwandan experience, I, and yet you look at many developed countries that the economics of the situation are abundantly clear and we are absolutely stalled right. on these issues. So how come? So how come? No, I'm asking the questions. No, I, I know, no, I, I, mean, I mean, but it's the operative question, but, but it's, it's the Rwandan examples, it's the, you know, the Nordic examples that you say, which is why I think the economic arguments are so important mm -hmm. to come to the forefront, because we've been at this for 20 years, more from a rights perspective, yeah. mm -hmm. which are critically important, but they don't, they have not resonated. Do we get bogged down in the rights discussion? I think we do. Yeah. Um, I, I, I because, well, I just get practical about it. You know, there, we have 3% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are women, which means 97% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are men. And they understand economics of their business. They will do what's in their shareholders' best interests. And they are the ones that, that 
Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. So, so let me get back to that Fortune 500 thing and, okay. and a very quick marketplace plug. We do a, a, a series of interviews called Conversations from the Corner Office. And we have had a large percentage of that 3% of Fortune 500 company C women CEOs on the program. Meg Whitman, uh, Ann Mulcahy from Xerox. We've had a bunch of them. Every time in those interviews that I say, listen, let's talk about women in leadership for a minute, they all go, I don't want to talk about it. Absolutely. How are you going to get anywhere? Well, let me, let me, let me take that one on. Yeah. Because here's what I think. Because USA Today does a story once a year. It infuriates me. They'll do a story about how well those 3% of the CEOs right, right. are They're doing. They're making a million dollars, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, do a story about the 97%, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? But, but, and, and All of them white, but that's another panel. Here's, what, and here, here's why I get mad about that, is one of the biggest problems for women is the lack of access to networks. Whether you're a woman entrepreneur or you're a woman in the corporate world, one of your biggest barriers and limitations is you aren't part of the natural networks because those networks are mainly men. It's a big barrier. <clears throat> so take an Ann Mulcahy or an Indra Newey, take the 3% mm -hmm. of the women CEOs. The, the CEOs work with each other. I mean, they can pick up the phone. The CEOs of the Fortune 500 pick up the phone and call each other, and they do business together. They mm -hmm. can, that, that's a network of CEOs. When you have 3% of the CEOs as women, do, and you think about the natural networks, and we all know you need a critical mass. You need about 30% for women to be able to just be themselves and, and mm -hmm. have their voice heard. When there's only 3%, Guaranteed Anne Mulcahy and Indra Nui and Ursula Burns, and are they're not part of that natural network. Right. They're still an excluded group. So they're still trying to be man enough for the job. They're not going to talk about the women's issues in your you know, it's, it's not safe yet for them. There is still a natural network they're excluded from. And so whether you look at it within a company or across a network, they're still a really small minority part of that network, so it's not functional for them. Okay, so how do we make it safe? What are the tools, now that we've talked about you know, the role that all these organizations and groups play, what are the tools? And one that we talked about earlier uh, amongst the four of us was this idea of mentoring, whether it's by men or by women, and how important that is to reach out and get women and teach them and guide them and help them. Sadia, thoughts on that? Sure. Um, I guess I would say that there's just going back a little mm -hmm. bit to the what's happening with why aren't we making this progress, sure. especially in some of these more traditional big companies. I guess part of the reason there is, and one of our good friends, Laura Liswood, she always says that um, there is no such thing as the glass ceiling, it's just a thick layer of men. And it, always, <laughs> and, and it always gets a lot of laughs, but that's the reality. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look in these current company structures and you have got men occupying those positions, it will take, even if you have a very clear policy in place, that the next time this position is vacant, we're going to search around until we find a woman to fill that position, it's going to take 20, 30 years before you manage to reach parity. Where I see signs of hope, though, are the new, the tomorrow's Fortune 500, the companies that are coming out of Brazil and India and China, and they are seeing already today that half of their, uh, if, if not more of the, for example, in just 20 years, um, there used to be half of the tertiary level education in China uh, was uh, women, and today it's near parity in, in terms of tertiary level education, in just 20 years. So they are already seeing this, and they're going to be much quicker, I think, to ensure that as they grow and as they expand fast, they ensure that they uptake these women into their, into their companies. So that's, mm -hmm. that's sort of a sign of hope I see from, from those markets. Um, but on this issue of how there is an amazing amount of confusion 
as to what needs to be done. And that's because this is still seen as an internal issue for a lot of companies when it's about hiring and firing and mentoring and these sort of practices for your employees. It's still very much an issue where with the rare exception of a few companies that have great stories to tell and have managed to get them out there, there isn't any sharing of data and understanding as to what certain companies are doing right, what were the barriers they faced along the way, why did certain programs fail. So what we've tried to do is actually create an understanding of first, where are we in terms of representation? And second, where are we in terms of the practices and policies and the implementation of those practices and policies? So we tried to survey out of the 100 biggest employers in each one of the 34 OECD plus BRIC countries um, and, and went straight to their heads of HR to ask what they're doing. First of all, we lost about, um, we managed to get answers from only about 20 of those countries because the other 14, we didn't get any answers. We got nine surveys back from Russia, two from China. So this is still an issue which some people simply do not want to answer or address. We were able to cover, however, a lot of other economies. And what we found is, um, in terms of representation, this classic pyramid that becomes extremely skewed towards the top. You've got almost 50% women entering at, at the entry level positions, drops down to about 30% in middle management, 20% in senior management, if that, um, about 15% at the board level, and overall in these 600 big employers, only about 5% at the CEO level. We then looked at what they're doing in terms of policies. And I'll give one example. I have so much data I could go on forever, so <laughs> I'll give just one example. Salary gaps. We know this is a problem. And we know that it becomes a problem the further up you go in a, country, a company's hierarchy. 74% of these companies, some of the biggest employers in the world, do not attempt to measure salary gaps. And here were the reasons. 15% said uh, they do measure them, but don't take any action. This was a confidential survey, so they did answer these questions. 13% said yes, they do measure them and try to take corrective action. 54% said they don't measure this because there are no gaps in salaries, they believe. Um, and 18%, no, we don't measure these gaps, but implicitly we do understand that there are salary gaps. So there's a huge problem still in terms of setting targets, putting the right measures in place, and part of it is because this information isn't shared across businesses. Sorry, mm -hmm. can I ask you a question? Did you correlate that data on the salary gaps with the um, numbers, the, the percentage of women on those corporate boards or percentage of women in senior management to see if the ones who actually were exploring it yeah, correlated? That's, better, right? that's yeah. very much part of the next studies that we're doing <laughs> with all of this Well, because I would really hypothesize <laughs> yeah. it. I, I would tell you from personal yeah, experience, just my own sure. Ernst & Young personal experience, it took the women on the board mm -hmm. making that analysis be done. Until that time, we didn't do it. Mm. Interesting. Um, uh, so we have uh, plus or minus half an hour left. We're going to get the questions in about five minutes. Do me a favor and, and uh, go to the microphone, if you would, so that we can pick it up on the recording and, and uh, identify yourself as you ask your question. We'd appreciate that. Let me uh, pick up on what you said about the Russians and the Chinese not responding and ask you a question about uh, the importance of region, since you're the Middle East specialist here, and also religion in these issues and, and the barriers that that pose, poses. Well, um what we know from the data is that women have made gains in every region around the world, uh, but three regions in particular have lagged. Okay. And that's Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. And uh, they have lagged in those regions 
for a variety of factors, but I think you've got the twin pillars of culture and, uh, and religion that yeah. have created uh, an additional set of barriers for women. Uh, in my focus is the Middle East and South Asia, which happens to be predominantly Muslim majority. And uh, you've had a, a rise of a political Islam that has equated women's rights with, uh, with bad things, with Westernism, with feminism, in some cases with communism, uh, and have uh, rejected, uh, in effect, uh, universal human rights arguments mm -hmm. for, uh, for women and women's rights. And so it's become a, uh, an increasingly contentious issue, and you've seen some countries uh, indeed go, go backwards. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Iran being the most notable with the rise of a, um, an Islamic theocracy that has identified uh, a particular you know, set of restrictions as part of uh, you know, their, uh, their identity that, that impacts women negatively. Uh, so I think you've had a, a combination of things regionally. In, in Sub-Saharan Africa, I think you have uh, some very um, uh, strongly rooted patriarchal cultures and practices that are not related to Islam. Uh, some countries are Muslim-majority countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, but many are not. And you, you really have these very strong traditions and cultures. But what I would say is look at Latin America. You know, you have those same types of attitudes in Latin America, and yet uh, you've had a lot of change in Latin America. Mm. And I think partly it's been the economic arguments that have driven that change in Latin America. I mean, I had... Um, a conversation with Ernesto Zedillo on these questions. And, you know, he, the president of Mexico, he gets it. You know, it's, we have to change because it's in our economic self-interest to do so. One of the uh, programs I write about in my book is uh, a program called Oportunidades in Mexico, which was um, really a cash-based uh, program to uh, given to women to incent women uh, to, do, um, to do certain things, to vaccinate their children, make sure they go to school. But it was given to the women because there's a realization about the economic benefits of doing that. And this is in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And by the way, New York City has adopted uh, an experimental program based on Oportunidad. It's called NYC Opportunity. Very much the same. Uh, funded by an anonymous benefactor in New York. We can all guess who that is. His name is Michael, <coughs> Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> and, um, but experimental. And this is this, is this you know, great south to north learning that I think is um, uh, being tried in many respects because in some, in some ways they're ahead of us. You know? But, but you know, even the situation in Haiti right now, your comments made me, yeah. I think we all see the news reports where you know, the relief efforts weren't going so well. They're, it's so plagued with corruption that they then had to start redistributing the aid, the relief, through women so that yeah. it would actually find its way to its intended target. But then when you step back and look at what's going on around the decision-making table of how to reimagine Haiti, women are noticeably absent. Yeah. And there ought to be an outcry you know, against that. It's, it, that just is so well, frustrating. It, it, it reminds me of you know, the early days post the invasion of Iraq it reminds me of the Norway conversation because uh, there was a clamor. Well, where are the women at the table? Mm. Oh, well, there aren't any. We'd love to have women at the table, but there aren't any. And you know, it's the it's the Norway. Well, top, find them. You know, and, 
because they are. They you are know, there. They are there. And Afghanistan is the same type of thing, you know. And so, uh, and those are two countries, interestingly, that have used quotas to put women into office. Right. And now you have 26% of the parliament in Iraq is female, 27% uh, of the parliament in Afghanistan, double our percentage in this country. Is, are they effective parliaments? Are these powerful women? No. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. You know, it'll take a long time. But what I can guarantee you is the use of quotas is going to um, uh, speed up that process, probably by generations. All right. So let's go to the, go to the floor. Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm Marie Wilson from the White House Project here in the U.S., and uh, Beth is the chair of our board, so she knows my question probably. I'll recuse myself from the answer. Recuse herself. I want to talk about two things uh, worldwide, but particularly in this country, in terms of how we do make this change, because the last question you ask is the question. And um, we just completed the largest survey ever done in this country across 10 areas of American society about where women are in leadership, and we're mm -hmm. at 18%, although the public is very positive about it. And we've been taking it around the country and asking women leaders, why is this not happening? You know, why are we at this low percentage in the leading democracy in all these sectors? And two things occur to me, and Isabel spoke about one of them this morning in her good first section. One has to do with the role of men. <laughs> And uh, the role of men has been prominent in some other countries. And as a matter of fact, in Norway, it was a very conservative foreign minister, a male, who noticed this thing on the boards and said, let's do it. And of course, they had a critical mass of women, and they did it. And the second is um, my concern about the bad name that quotas get. Mm -hmm. Because every, everything you have talked about where there has been progress in politics, in business, and has been about targeting and has been about accountability and quotas. And as I ask women in this country about quotas, I want to tell you the underground issue is women know it will take quotas, and they are so scared of the word quota. I've been trying things like, what if we called it a quota? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so how's, they, how's that going for you? <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, so, so, I, I, so I'm, my question right. really is, in the countries that aren't making progress, which really often, uh, even though the, they're starting to adopt it, but it's our country, you know, we're not leading the way on this. I do not think the men believe there's a correlation between what women bring economically, because it has been proven, and they aren't moving on it. And why will we not move to some kind of stronger, knowing that women are innovative in the economy, way of doing this. Isabel, why don't you take that one first? Quotas do have a really bad name in this country, Marie, and um, God bless you with your quota. quota. <laughs> I love where, it. where we're going to get with that. You know, um, my, my expertise really is not the United States in, on these issues, but I look globally. Right. And uh, the, the whole discussion of quotas in the Afghan and in the Iraq context, because both constitutions ended up with a right. quota for women. And it was not the US clamoring for those quotas. And in fact, my interviews with lots of the people involved in those decisions um, were that the US came to it reluctantly, um, knowing that it was in the United States' best interest to have more women in these, what were going to be clearly conservative religious parliaments and to have more women who are moderates and yes. aligned in right. many respects with, with US uh, interests was a good thing. And yet the reluctance, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, um, 
it's, it's really striking. And yet the quotas, I think, um, have not been um, you know, a, a home run, but they've been a single in those countries, at least to get, uh, to normalize the idea, to normalize the idea of women in the public sphere um, in, in these deeply conservative traditional countries. You know, in the United States context, um, I, I, just, I just don't see us adopting quotas. Sadia, thoughts? Again, for, as, I'm, as somebody I'm not who observes, well, no, yeah. but you're an observer from afar, right? So give us the, right. the objective viewpoint. And I'm not a, not a, again, not a U.S. expert, but I, I come from Pakistan. Even in Pakistan, at the bottom of all the rankings on these indicators, even in Pakistan, we've managed to put quotas in place for women in parliament as well as women voting in, in, in elections. Um, in India, 30% women at the panchayats, at the local council level, and now there's a move to, to take it to 50%. I actually don't know if it's, if it's passed or not, but that happened recently as well. So they just it's, passed it, it at the national level in right. India. Hmm. Um, yeah. so, there's, so, so there is, uh, there's so many examples of places where this has been put into place. But I would say, you know, if the word quota is stigmatized, I think targets and having targets in place for uh, certain numbers that need to be reached, and if it's seen more as a longer-term policy rather than this needs to happen from one year to the next, but more over the next 10 years, we need to see these positions occupied by 30% women, that's a target, that's a longer-term target, and there can be many ways to get there. Maybe that's the way to go. Said by also by the companies. Mm -hmm. Also by right. the companies, yeah. Thank you, yes. I'm Shelley Porges. Uh, I lead an initiative at the U.S. Department of State called the Global Women's Business Initiative. I want to tell you about an exciting thing that we're doing, but um, also ask Kyle, even though you're the one asking the questions, That's right. um, why aren't you asking the 97% of men appearing on your show about what they're doing about the women's things? I think that we're focused on the wrong thing if we're saying why the 3% of women CEOs have to respond to this. You know, they're, they're challenged enough to demonstrate that they are CEOs, women are, you know, gender aside, but I think that, you know, here we are marginalizing ourselves by being in a room of, with all due respect to the wonderful men in this room, mostly women. We yeah. need to get into Dora Hosier in the McNulty room is where we ought to be with an audience of two to 300 people. But anyway, so... so You're right. That's a fair question. You're absolutely yeah. right. And, and, I, and, and I so, so all, I listen to his show, and I think it's a magnificent show, and I'm looking forward to you asking the men, CEOs, who you've got there at that same question. Okay. There, there is this thing called the cutting room floor, though, just so you know. It's yeah. Half an hour interview, six minutes on. Yes. All right. I understand. Um, I, I just want to share with you a supplier diversity initiative that's very exciting that we're promoting at the State Department. It's an organization, a nonprofit called We Connect International. It's, it's been incubated by a U.S. based NGO called Women's Business Enterprise National Council. What the WBENC, WeBank, does is they certify women-owned businesses to do business with American multinationals. And over the last 10 years, they've certified over 10,000 women-owned businesses here in the U.S. doing billions, literally billions of dollars of business with over 200 American major corporations like Ernst Young, Marriott, um, uh, Walmart, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, you know, both goods and services. Uh, WeConnect was incubated and then just uh, got its 501c3 last fall. What we're working with them to do is to start to work with them in key geographies that are important to us uh, strategically in the, uh, in the Muslim countries, but also in Latin America, in India, and elsewhere, so that we can bring those certification things. And, and the American multinationals are also committed to doing this because they've seen the benefit of doing business with women-owned companies in America, and now we're trying to um, 
export that and promote that actively overseas. And that's so, a great so, example yeah, of what let me, government Let me turn is. it into a question, though. Do you think the rest of the world will be receptive to a U.S.-led initiative uh, along these lines? Beth? Well, it's certification of, of women-owned businesses doing business with multinationals. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and Isabel referenced the, some of the public policy things that could be done which require certain number of percentage of women, certain percentage of your supply chain to be driven toward women. So I think those two things work together very yeah, nicely. they do. I mean, I, I actually uh, mentioned WeConnect in this <coughs> foreign affairs piece I wrote in the May June issue because now what you have is, um, is shareholder demand mm -hmm. uh, that is driving corporations to care more about these issues. Right clearly in the United States, but now as they look for growth in emerging markets and look at women as an emerging market, uh, one of the things that corporations are, are coming to understand is that it is driving to their bottom line to have more women, as we've been saying, customers, but also part of their supply chain. And so they see value in that from a diversity perspective. It just makes their supply chain more productive. Um, from a risk management perspective, uh, you know, to not be so dependent on, on one set of suppliers. And, and women are an important component of that. And WeConnect is helping American corporations source from women-owned businesses in emerging markets. Now, will local companies, will, will Tata yeah. get religion on this? Yeah. I, I don't know. But if, if Tata sees its um, Western multinational corporations you know, having some advantage from doing this, chances are it will. It doesn't even matter, though, because these women-owned businesses are going now to be part of the Walmart supply chain. Right, which is It helps them. Huge. It makes yeah. them huge, and yeah. chances are they'll, they'll be, uh, some of them will be very successful. Right. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Hello. Um, I'm Pat Ellis. I'm president of the Women's Foreign Policy Group. I founded it 15 years ago with another woman because there were so, so few women in doing foreign policy and international things, and we started as a network getting to know people from across the field, and I feel very strongly that women do have to help other women, um, number one. So that goes for the private sector, the public sector, in all sectors. And for this reason, networks are extremely important, whether they're internal or external. But I think it's very important to go across sectors because I think we have a lot to learn from each other in the business sector, you know, can help the public sector, et cetera. Also, I think the good news is you are seeing so many more women leaders today. And I mean, they're visible and they have to be more visible. We have to hear from them more. I used to be a journalist. You do not hear um, from enough women leaders, whether they're members of Congress, whether there are so many senior women in government today, particularly in the State Department, and we know, of course, the Secretary of State, but others doing so many amazing things. You rarely hear from them. You do not hear that much from senior women in the business sector. So I think visibility is a very key thing because these women are tremendous role models. And part of the good news I want to share is that there are a lot of young women coming through the system, whether it's in the foreign service, in so many different areas, and they need to be nurtured and encouraged, which leads me to the segue of the importance of mentoring. One of the key things with the Women's Foreign Policy Group and many other groups, we feel we have to give back to the next generation. These are the future leaders. And uh, anyway, 
I, I just wanted to ask a question about that because mentoring, and it's not a speech, I, I'm against those. M mentoring, <laughs> mentoring um, we, we do one kind of mentoring. There's the internal mentoring, but we sit at tables and we counsel people and from all different sectors and the, and the students come, they make contacts. That's one of the hardest things. And I'm just wondering how, and so the last point is, I want, the question is, how, how do you get the men on board to also be supportive of mentoring and supportive of your activities of helping other women? Beth, go ahead, take that one. Um, boy, it's a loaded question. I, how do you get men to be more supportive of mentoring both from themselves and, and be supportive of us in our efforts. I mean, I work for one of the greatest chairmen in the world in terms of the support for what I mean. My job is not around women. Uh, my job is, Kai, you explained, is public policy. That means I'm in 140 countries meeting with finance ministers and regulators, and I use that platform to advance women. And I stole the idea from Hillary Clinton when she was first lady. When I watched her use her platform around the world to empower women, and I think. You know, that's, so I'm going to deviate from your question because it's a point I wanted to make as you were making your points is all of us have a platform to advance this issue. Every one of our platforms is different. We can, we can impact different things in different ways. Some are small, some are large. It doesn't matter, but we all have platforms. Judith Roden, the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, was on a panel the other night. She was asked about mentoring, you know, and how, you know, and we all mentor tons of people within our organizations, with outside of our organizations. But... What I think is important is that we all use our platforms to the maximum benefit. And Judith, I wanted to ask her a question the other night because the Rockefeller Foundation with the State Department has, and Shelley, you may correct me, I, won't, I don't remember the exact name, but they have, uh, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation has dedicated a, an enormous amount of money to be awarded to women. Uh, women. The Secretary of the Innovation Fund. Yeah. Thank you. And the State okay. Department has been overwhelmed with people applying for that, innovatively. So that has catalyzed an entire new level of thinking. That's the Rockefeller Foundation using their platform to really right. propel. Now that, to me, is frankly much more impactful than, than Judith mentoring 10 women. You know, I mean, it's, so it's everybody using their platform to just make those maximum yeah. impacts. Uh, so just in the interest of getting everybody out of here on time, we probably should cut the line off uh, where it is. Let me just very quickly follow up on this mentoring uh, idea, and then we'll get back to the floor. When young female executives come to you, uh, entry level, mid-level, what do they say they want? They, they get a meeting with you way up in the corner office someplace. Oh, my God, it's Beth Brook. What do they want? Just to talk. Um, and, and the biggest thing you can do for them is demystify the black box yeah. and just talk uh, and be honest and be authentic. They, they all have different issues, but all of them just want to know that they can, they can achieve their potential however they want to do that. And they want your um, wisdom, if you will, in how did you get over the barriers that they face, how did you deal with them. They want you to be human. They, they, don't, you know, they just want to recognize that you're just like them. You've sat in their shoes. Uh, and it's it's a journey that we're all on, and we've all been we'll be through it together. Yes, That's why role models are so important. Right. Yeah. So, in the interest of time, I'll make this extremely brief um, and, and directed. I think Beth probably is the best person to answer this. Um, assuming that our government doesn't um, legislate parity on corporate boards or enact quotas, um, <laughs> that's so, the takeaway from this. Right. One, quotas. <laughs> right. um, 
what are the three things that, that women in the workforce should do to become successful and, and set themselves on a path for being on corporate boards or uh, set themselves on a path for elected office? Um, it depends on what they want to do, but I mean, I think that the best things they can do is become invaluable to those around them in the sphere that they operate in. Um, if you're invaluable to those around you, the path forward, doors are going to open to do many, many, many other things. So sometimes I think women get too set on, what am I going to do five years from now? What am I going to do ten years from now? And we miss the opportunities that are right there in front of us by becoming invaluable in what we are doing at that moment in time, um, which allows us to open other, other doors. Networks, you know, finding mentors. I, I've never had a formal mentor that's worked. Um, it's always been those informal mentors, men and women. They change over time. You know, I, you know, and you have lots of them who help you with very different things. Um, and I, I just find people outside our organization, frankly, to be the most helpful because they, they, they have very different ways of thinking and things. So I encourage young women to get involved in things outside of just the focused sphere because that just makes them, helps them be invaluable in the sphere they're actually at. Sadia, your thoughts on that as, as coming from, you know, the World Economic Forum and, and the close work you do with businesses. Yeah. Um, so as part of this survey, we actually asked people what do they think are the biggest barriers to promoting women's uh, equality in, in the business world. Um, biggest barrier, norms and cultural practices in the country, patriarchal or masculine corporate culture, and third, lack of role models. And that's basically culture, culture, culture. And mm -hmm. culture happens to be man-made, and I truly mean man-made. Yeah. And Agreed. so it can, it, and, and cu culture can be changed as well. So it is all about leadership and the tone from the top. And just a li little example here, Carlos Ghosn, who is, is on our advisory board and Rem the CEO, Remind folks who he is. Yeah, uh, Nissan and Renault, um, you know, the car industry, not exactly known for uh, employing huge amounts of women in, in, in its ranks. Um, but uh, he gave two particular reasons, and one was, um, we all know women make 83% of consumption decisions, but that also applies to cars. And they, women happen to look at a totally different set of things when they're buying cars versus men. So there was a recognition that women then need to be not only part of their marketing and sales teams, but also part of their design teams, because women are looking for a certain type of cars to, uh, that they're looking to buy. But the second thing he, he said was just, you know, we have an average of 40 to 45 year careers these days. Are we really saying that we can't give women six months out, maybe one year, maybe two years maximum out because they need to have children or because they're the primary caregiver still? Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I also have a lot to say mm -hmm. on that. But if, if that is still the case, um, are we really saying that in 40 or 45 years, we can't give them a couple of years out? So that, I, I think those are two, two main ways of, of moving forward on, on this issue. Yeah, I, just Isabel, to, I just have to jump in because I think there is a big elephant in the room that has not been mentioned until just now, which is that women are mm -hmm. the primary caregivers. And yes. exactly. you know, the, the fact is that it's great to talk about you know, all these corporate policies, but ultimately this is about husbands and wives together or partners figuring out how they're gonna raise their family and make it work. And when people come and talk to me looking for advice, I mean, I happen to have raised five kids. And doing that while you're I You're done already? No way. What'd you start I'm when done. you were like I'm 12? Finished. <laughs> <laughs> They're all raised and out? You're no, done. but I've, I am yeah. in the process of raising right. five children. And, you know, the, it's a juggle. And, yeah. and I would not be here today were it not for the fact that I'm married to an incredibly supportive 
husband who's you know home with my kids right now. And you know, he but he has his very full. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He has a very full job too. It's a juggle, and if you don't acknowledge that and figure out how to deal with that, then you the people will drop out. That's and right. you've, you've, it is an elephant in this room. But, you know, yeah. and, but it. it's not just women as employees, that's women as entrepreneurs. Right. Yeah, they face that women even more politics, acutely. Women in politics, women in anything, it's any, anything. And, and Frankly, politics and entrepreneurs are the two that struggle with it more than anybody. Most, right, because exactly. corporations provide yeah. flexibility. Because right. you can't, you can't get that time if you're a female politician or, or, if, you're, or if you're a female entrepreneur, right? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. My name is Mariam, and I come from Nigeria. And I was just trying to relate to what was being said here and the issues of culture and perceptions of religion, because I continue to maintain that religions actually do not constitute barriers. But the perceptions and the patriarchal development of religion has instituted these barriers in women's minds. And they themselves believe these things. So it's very difficult to break those myths. And um, I was just wondering how it's done in other countries because we are, we are far behind and we're trying. You know, in terms of uh, the public sector, there are issues relating to money and collateral and all those issues continue to, to, to raise their heads when we ask, when we try to support women to go into business with politics, we've tried very hard to get these quotas into, into the laws, <laughs> but the houses of assembly are, are manned by men. Yeah. And uh, most of them, the, the, the most we have is maybe 7% in the national assembly. And these guys just threw out all the, the, the reform committees had all the issues that would support women but when it was placed before the national assemblies and the state houses of assembly to get these laws passed, the men threw them out because they're, well, being generous, they're oblivious to the problems that, that women face. When you're elected into government, you're, I mean, you don't have the same challenges or you have much more than, you do, than men do because the men have their socks clean, they go to work, they just focus on that, they eat warm food, their children go to school, but women have to confront with those and work with that, you know, so trying to get pressures around the school, so that, um, around the legislative houses, so that women, it's not so hard for them, you know, and then we have so many issues. I was just wondering if you could share your experiences yeah. in these developing countries. Isabel, why don't, you, why don't you take that one? Thank you. Well, um, Thank you. you know, the, your point about religion per se not being the barrier, but the way that the patriarchal interpretation of religion has um, has posed a barrier, and um, I think that you know in in uh, the part of the world that I focus on, in, in some of these conservative Muslim countries, when these laws come in front of the parliament, they're shot down on religious grounds. And what uh, what I've just written this whole book about is the um, the uh, attempts by women and men to push back and say no, that is not. Uh, a necessity in 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 your in this religious interpretation. There's an alternative interpretation that allows for these changes or allows for these laws um, and that are compatible. And I, I think it's engaging with religion and finding religious leaders to engage with you and to support those efforts um, and finding you know tribal leaders in in tribal cultures finding patriarchal leaders who actually are more um, progressive in their thinking and willing to use that bully pulpit you know, is critical in helping this cultural change happen.
I, I agree. You know, and, and sure. you know, I wish a movie they would show here and make it mandatory watching is Pray the Devil Back to Hell and the story of the Liberian women. If anybody has not seen that, I would highly recommend it. But, but to, to Isabel's point, let me translate that into a U.S. context. Can yeah. I just say one yeah, yeah. very quick Sir? thing? We, quickly, we screened that film, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, at the Council on Foreign Relations, and this very well-intentioned man stood up and said, my gosh, this is incredible. Why is it that only in Liberia have women done this? <laughs> it's like, but you missed the whole point. It's because there was a film crew there. Yeah. They do it in every they country. They do it in every country. That's <laughs> anyway, right. But, no, exactly. But, but the point of, of your point about the bully pulpit and then finding the religious mm -hmm. leaders that then can use it, I translate it in the U.S. You know, we do have some companies that are very progressive on these issues. One of the CEOs is here, um, Lee McIntyre with CH2M Hill. Most of us probably don't even know what CH2M Hill yeah. is. Um, is an engineering, very progressive and enlightened on these issues. You know, we ought to be celebrating Lee McIntyre and, and giving him a pulpit to, to use because he actually, among his male colleagues, is pretty, pretty advanced on these. Last question, yes ma'am. Hello everybody, my name is Nancy Hogshead Maycar and I'm the Director of Advocacy for the Women's Sports Foundation. Yeah. And, um, sorry about Billie Jean King. And, um, and you know, one thing that the, that the United States has done well is Title IX and how the regulations have applied it to athletics. And the recent research shows Betsy Stevenson, she's out of, um, out of Pitt, <clears throat> um, that you know, shows that actually sports participation in a high school isn't just associated with more education, it actually causes more education. Um, and um, not only do our athletes who have just have a high school experience, they're much more likely to go into non-traditional fields. They're much more sort of to break those gen those bar gender barriers right now. So, you know, it's it's done so much for American women. And, um, you know, it, it took a long time before feminists in the United States really embraced women in sports. For a while it was like, well, that's what guys do. And gosh, we don't want really any part of that. And so sort of these two movements that sort of came up I independently. So, but what's being done, you know, when, when we talk about education, is there a sports component? Is that as important as math class? Is, is you know, when, when women get that physical intelligence, when they know about their bodies and they know how to move their bodies, is that part of what's going on? So I gotta, I gotta ask the Purdue basketball player that question, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, that's all. I mean, I think sports is a huge. You look at um, many, many of the. You look at the Fortune three percent. You know, many of them have an athletic background. Right. I think that there's right. there's reason for that. Um, so I think there's a huge correlation. I kind of flip it to the other part of your argument. I, sports is a key role in education, but I also look at Title IX and say, why aren't we sort of demand? That is the only example of gender mainstreaming in the United States that I can find, and it's been a very successful transformational effect. Why don't we think about that framework in other sectors and, and sort of parlaying it? Well, as a professor of law, can I answer that? Just yeah, actually, it's a long debate. Let me exercise a moderator's prerogative here and, and ask actually the last question of the day because I, I know you guys have other panels you have to get to and I'm sure folks want to chat with ours uh, afterwards. There are, or there were when we started, five men in this room. We're gonna get anywhere until there's 50% men in this room, Isabel? You know, um, I don't know if it has to be 50%, but it's gotta be 30 or 40%. Yeah. I mean, we need a critical mass of men to embrace these issues. Exactly. And, uh, and that is really why you know, my work, I focus on, there are lots of people who look at these issues from a rights perspective. 
Right. But I don't think it moves the needle, frankly, and it hasn't moved the needle for a long time. When that is really why, personally, I push the economic angle and, frankly, the security angle. You know, I'm, I'm, I work for a foreign policy think tank. I focus on the security angle, and we haven't talked about that. But many of these male leaders in the Middle East are now gung ho on women's empowerment <laughs> because they see it as a way of tempering extremism in their in own the society. And you know they're they're actually aggressively promoting women, as um, you know Morocco, for example, a country that has a lot of homegrown extremism. They have a whole program to train women as preachers, as Muslim preachers who do everything the men can do except lead the Friday prayer, and they've gotten it through. You know it's been religiously blessed, but the reason they do it, and they they tell me, is because they think this is a way of tempering extremism in their society. Turkey is doing it, Qatar is doing it, Egypt is doing it. It's, it, it men are engaging on these issues out of self-interest, and the, that self-interest, frankly, is economics and security. And on the cynical theme, we don't care why men engage, we just want them to engage, right? Exactly. You know, actually, I, I mentioned this article I wrote in Foreign Affairs, 2004, the payoff from women's rights. Mm -hmm. I got pushback from women. Why do we need to justify this on economic grounds? You don't. You can yeah. continue justifying it on human rights grounds. Go to town. Go to town. I'm happy for you to do that. You know, it's it's great, and I'm thrilled. You know, I'm thrilled. Nick Kristof reminds people all the time about the human yeah. rights component of this. Great, but I think you have to hammer on the economics and, frankly, hammer hammer on the security. Beth Brook, final thoughts. Well, just on the point yeah. of men, uh, you know, you got you got to use your platform. You got to put your money where your mouth is. I, Went to this last year. We participated in an international women's forum meeting in Deauville, France. It's a, it's a big meeting on these issues last year for the first time. And they said, you know, well, are you going to sponsor next year? What would you do? And, and we said, you know, no. But here's what we will do. Because it was just women talking to women. Right. And we said, what we're going to do this year, and we're doing right. it, is we're going to bring 10 male CEOs. And we will bring them to this meeting, to this conference. Because you know, we just think that's, yeah. you know, so you got to do what you got to do. Sadia, final thoughts. I think it's, it's probably the most rational way to go if we're going to really make the next big push on this. At the very bottom, um, you've got women coming up increasingly as the, the highest number of, of graduates. Even in this country, I think it's 54% now yeah. the figure. We know the figures in the Middle East, we know <coughs> the figures in Latin America, increasingly it's women. Not to say that there aren't still a number of girls who are out of school, a lot of uh, places in the world where there's still a lot of progress to be made on that education factor. But now that you've got this talent pool, and at the very top, the reality is it is still occupied by men. So to, to, to make those two things come together, you need the tone from the top, and you have this influx of people from the bottom. The two things need to meet. You need the economic argument to make right. this happen. And on that, we are done. I thank you for your time, and I thank you for your thoughts. Thank you.